to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you this week from the fourth tee at Farm Neck Golf Club on Martha's Vineyard, gazing out over the green at the pond and the Atlantic Ocean beyond it. And this is Season 3, Episode 17. Buckle up, folks, because we're going around the world today with Hal Phillips. Hal is the principal behind Mandarin Media, a golf course-centric PR and media relations firm. In his quarter century of work in the marketing agency space with architects, private clubs, and developers, he's had a front row seat to the trends and events that have shaped golf course design for the last three decades. But as you'll hear, Hal's interests stretch far past the 18th green, as we discuss his upcoming book, Chinese political economy, and a brief foray into the world of professional golf via the Saudi Arabian investment in the nominally titled Asia Tour. I met Hal last summer at the Kenwood Country Club event when I somehow inexplicably ended up on his invite list for Preview Play Day, an event designed for golf course raiders. Disclaimer, I'm not a raider for any golf course publications or golf publications. I've only been a media member once. That was when I wanted a credential for the PGA Shore in Orlando some five years ago. But I make it a habit not to look gift horses in the mouth, so however Hal found me, I'm glad that he did, and I'm grateful that I got to play in his foursome that day in Cincinnati. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Just a little note about the audio, Hal is in the middle of a major renovation of his house up there in Maine, and a little bit of the construction noise may creep into our dialogue. Apologies for that, but it shouldn't be enough to ruin the entire listening experience. Before that, though, a reminder that you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod, as well as on Instagram. There are links in the show notes to the Mandarin Media website, which includes Hal's blog and the piece we discussed near the end of the interview. Finally, a reminder that while this show is a proud member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows under the cracking leadership of award-winning podcaster Rod Morey, this Blind Shots podcast is sponsored exclusively by me, David Hill, Realtor. In addition to playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes, and also with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. you got a real estate question, if you want to know how to invest in real estate in an inflationary market, reach out to me and we can start a conversation. And now, a true blind shot of a conversation with Hal Phillips. So you are the managing director of Mandarin Media, which I'm not sure you realize this yet, turns 25 years old this year. Wow. That I did is, not realize that. <laughs> that is incredibly entrepreneurial for an old journalist, Hal. So tell me how that happened. Um, well, I'm a newspaper guy and, you know, uh, wanted to be the next Bob Ryan. I grew up in Boston, so I wanted to write for the Globe and cover the Celtics and, and uh, be a sports writer. So when I got out of college, I got into the newspaper world. And after I did that for oh, seven or eight years, um, you know, it went well, but I was living like a raccoon and just didn't was tired of working at night and making no money. So um, I took a job running a a golf publication out of Maine of all play places. Um, it's a, it was like a, like a, a barons um, for the golf industry, a, you know, an industry publication. Um, so I did that for five years, met my wife, got married. Um, and, you know, from there it was, well, either start a mark, you know, marketing communications company and stay in Maine or 
move to New York and accept, you know, a job at, you know, golf magazine or something like that, which, you know, which had been sort of offered to me and a couple different opportunities there in that way. So we started the company because we figured, why not? I'm talking about my wife and me. I mean, I really do it, but it was her decision too. And here we are 25 years later. And uh, thank you for reminding me. I would not have known that I had an anniversary in 2021. (laughs) So you came up before print started spinning off the side of the world. Yeah, I'm really, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. So um, I'm like, I'm uh, my life sort of spans identifiable generations, you know, Mm -hmm. and this happens to me in, in, or I've noticed it happen, you know, myriad ways, Uh, but yeah, I, I, we, you know, when I got in the newspaper business, we were still, um, we were computerized, there were computers, but people were still, you know, waxing galleys and, and physically laying them on boards and carving them out with exacto knives. Yeah, it was, oh. it was old. It wasn't hot type, but it was, it was, you know, again, an interstitial period in the journalism business that I did get to witness. And I'm glad I did because it was, uh, it was fun. Now, so you go from there where you are a writer or an editor in that side to working for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it, talk to me a little bit about that transition and who who do you work for? Are you do you work for generally real estate people, golf architect people, golf developers? Just a just broadly, you know, any and all is the answer. I mean, it, it's easier, I guess, to explain when I do it this way. When I worked at Golf Course News, which was the trade publication that I ran for five years, um, I was I was the person to whom companies, golf companies, sent press releases and and feature pitches. You know, they wanted to be in my magazine, um, and on the whole, they did it terribly. <laughs> I mean, it was the, it, you know, and I'm and after when I thought about starting this business, I'm like, I can do this way better than that. Um, and so, you know, I started working with golf course architects because I noticed that they did a particularly poor job of promoting themselves in media. They're artists, um, but they don't have that. The BSing element, I find, is a little lacking with them. Yeah, it's, it's sort of odd because they're really, you know, not all of them, but they're they're big personalities. They're they're not egotists. I'm not going to say that, but they're they are selling themselves. And you'd think they'd be a little bit better or savvy about doing it in media, but they're really not. Um, and it's you know, it is it is an art, I guess. And so those were the first guys that I really started working with were golf course architects. And it has spun off into, you know, 15 different directions. So I've worked I've worked with developers. I've worked with resorts themselves. I've worked with private clubs. I've worked with companies that make, you know, um, you know, chemical products for for the for the for the golf course industry, as opposed to the the PGA type golf industry. That's all shirts. I had a great a great old sports writer that used to work with me, Vern Putney, who referred to uh, golf pros as glorified haberdashers. And I was like, that's great because they do. (laughs) They, They really don't. They don't know anything about golf. They know how to sell shirts and give lessons and that's it. But yeah, so I've worked with all different kinds of companies in the course of time and, you know, overseas where I, you know, ended up doing a lot of my work. It's almost all resorts and private clubs, but here in North America, yeah, it runs the gamut of golf oriented, golf course oriented companies. Well, now see, that's, that transitions next where I wanted to go, you know, golf as a, 
delivery mechanism to sell housing has been on pause here since the 08, for about a decade. It has much more transitioned to what is being built is being built to sell resort experiences. You know, the Kaisers have that nail. They've been building everywhere. The Cabot Group. Um, talk to me a little bit. Has that been the, the your experience globally as opposed to domestically what you've seen? Like, are, are we a lagging indicator on that? Or has... Um, just talk about a little bit about how the, the golf courses are sold differently, if if they are. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting time in that regard. You know, up until 2008, um, golf real estate was used, you know, was was essentially a tool to sell. Golf was a tool to sell golf real estate. So the, the golf course, while it feels like it's the center of a of a golf community or a, or a resort, it's really just an amenity to a much bigger and more lucrative operation. So, you know, um, I got in this business in 92. So from 92 to 2008, um, you know, golf courses were just built hand over fist and a big portion of them were built as amenities to um, uh, residential communities or like you say, resorts. Um, You know, come 2008, all that collapsed. So and and it collapsed here in the states before it collapsed anywhere else. So in that in that way, we are the leading edge of the failure. Okay. Um, and subsequently, you know, you know, golf associated housing became sort of the redheaded stepchild of this business. Um, it became something no one wanted to touch um, because it could go so wrong. It had you know there was a huge amount of closure associated with that real estate collapse. I think that something like 150 golf courses have closed um, simply by attrition every year since 2008. So that's what 14 times 150, whatever that is. That's a lot of golf courses. That's 10% of the stock, right? Because yeah. there's about there was about 17,000 golf courses, you know, in the United States and now there's 15,000. So a lot of people lay that that business at the at the feet of real estate, you know, oriented golf course development. Now, now you know now today we have you know a huge housing issue where there's no inventory, and all up and down the East Coast, people are you know bidding like crazy to get freaking houses because there's not enough supply to meet demand. Well, I just wrote a story. Um, for golf course industry magazine about how, you know, things are turning back around. I mean, a lot of, a lot of projects are turning to housing to sort of drive the um, development money um, again, you know, again, because, you know, fairway living all of a sudden doesn't look so terrible. Um, It's, it's affordable. A lot of people in my age group and up I'm 57, um, are retiring and they're cashing out of their house and they want to go down and live someplace. You got to have a place to go when you're 57 and you sell your house for potloads of money. Um, so it's coming back. And I, I find that fascinating that, you know, for so long it's been, it's been a scourge and now it's coming back. In fact, the story was about dormant golf courses, courses that had been, that were built in 2010 and basically were maintained with no business you know, no golfers for a decade waiting for this moment. 
or prices and that moment has arrived. Yeah, you're you're getting into my business realm. I'm a realtor by trade and Oh, that's right. Yeah, the the demand for green space. We had one we have one here that was redone in 2005 that closed in 2020. So they made a significant investment, you know, a decade ago, decade and a half. And they've already said, nope, the, the land prices have gotten high enough. We've reached our squeal point. We're out. It was a private club, family owned. Um, you know, we're starting to see Myrtle Beach has lost how many courses just because not because of lack of golfers, but because, hey, we can make a lot more money as a, you know, developing this than and they had, you know, they were the in my eyes, they were the capital of the overbuilt golf market. Uh, part of that 17,000, but they have, you know, it seems like you, you get a story every month or every few months about another course that's you know, down there that's being repurposed, um, whether it was, was had laid fallow, like the, you're talking about in your story, um, or it was newly adjacent. I was looking back at our correspondence. I sent you a list of courses in our area. Was that part of, was that background on, or just a personal research project on, uh, for this golf course industry piece. Oh, I'm trying to think about that now. I think that was more general. So, so a couple of things just to go jump back and forth. You know, one of the reasons I left golf course news in the nineties was I wanted to write more for myself. So when I started this business, I did you know, two things. I started the business, but I also started actively freelancing in the consumer golf press and all sorts of different kinds of golf press under my own byline, because, you know, that's what I am. I'm a writer. I'm a content creator now, <laughs> 21st century. But um, uh, so I think I was I was researching a story back then um, about the golf economy in greater Cincinnati. OK. And I wanted to know how many golf courses had closed there because that was relevant to the fact that Kenwood Country Club um, you know, was doing so well, um, because the, part of the, part of, you know, the, this amazing moment that we're in in golf is yes, uh, real estate is coming back because the housing stock is so low, but, oh, by the way, there's a pandemic and golf participation is going through the roof, mm -hmm. which no one was prepared for right. no one. And, um, so you've got these two pressures now on, on, you know, on golf courses and, you know, there's still golf courses that are closing. There's always a golf course that will close for whatever reason, but that number has really fallen from the 150, you know, a year um, on account of participation and yeah, these housing pressures that are true in every market, including Cincinnati. Well, you mentioned that you are a writer at heart. You have been laboring studiously to get a book manuscript finished. Tell me about that project. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I've been a golfer all my life and I played in college and, you know, Used to be okay, and now I'm terrible. But uh, I played uh, I played soccer um, all growing up too, and played semi professionally in my twenties, and um, you know played in England and what have you. So it, that's always been a passion of mine. And um, I've written a book about the modern American soccer movement, which is you know sort of a team biography of the 1990. Um, U.S. men's national team that qualified for the Italian World Cup in 1990. And before that time, no American team had ever qualified for the World Cup. And um, that was really sort of a watershed event. And pretty much 
Well, how, how old are you? I'm at, I'm at the end of Gen X. I was born in 79. So I remember when we hosted. So right. you're, you're right. saying the first time we qualified was on the backside of hosting? Yes. And, and you know, basically, until 1990, when this team broke through, you know, American soccer, you know, American soccer used to be considered globally, you know, sort of an oxymoron like Jamaican bobsledding. I mean, it, it just, I mean, it, think of where it was it, where it was culturally. I mean, I was, I'm, yes. you talked about, you spanned a lot of generations. When I was a kid, it was still the Holy Trinity. Boys played baseball, football, and basketball, depending on what the weather was. And the kids that couldn't did something else. They went and played golf. They went and played tennis, or they went and played soccer. The long haired, long haired kids went and played soccer. That was what it was in the, like I said, in the nineties, that was culturally growing up and it, it started to change a little bit. Now I'm a guy that watches premier league with my kids on Saturday mornings, uh, just for entertainment. Right. So I'm 57. And, uh, when, you know, we used to live, I was an adult in a, in a soccer in different country. And then all of a sudden, you know, it changed and it occurred to me in about 2012. I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, we're, you know, I just, I just finished my preface. So I talked about this, um, you know, I'm sitting in a bar in Seattle and I'm watching this champions league match. And I it was the first bar I walked into it was on already. Um, I didn't have to sweet talk the barman into switching it over from, you know, general hospital, which I used to have to do. <laughs> and the place is packed with young people. I'm the oldest person in the bar. And I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, and you know, what happened? How, how did this happen? Because I mean, it wasn't like soccer was just nowhere in the seventies and, and especially the eighties, it was derided. It was picked on. It was. Um, and now we live in this mature soccer culture. How did we get here? And so this book explains the shift. It, the cultural shift. And I do it through the lens of this, this one team that really their, their victory, their, their, their going to Italy sort of opened the floodgates. Um, the 94 world cup would not have happened if they did not qualify for Italy, 1990. Um, and it just so happens that these guys, a are exactly my age. Um, the several guys on this team I played against in college, they billeted in my house when I was 12. But also, we're the first generation of soccer players who grew up with the game. I mean, have you ever heard of the youth soccer revolution? No. Well, in the 70s, in the, you know, in the early 70s, all these soccer, you know, youth soccer programs just started sprouting up all over the, the suburbs of this country. Was that because of Pele? Because yeah. he'd come to the States? Yeah, they, they were, that, that's part of what the book is about. The, the first couple of chapters talk about the culture that existed in America during the 1970s that allowed this to happen. Um, but in short, all these youth soccer programs sprouted up in suburbs everywhere in America. And there's a generation of people, I'm part of this generation, that played soccer from the get-go. Now that it had never happened in this country before. So it just so happens that the first group of players who grew up in that environment are the ones who went to Italy and qualified and changed the way we think about this game. So that's what the book is about. And I, those guys are my subjects and I talked to 15 of them and we sort of follow the, the 20 year journey from those youth leagues to Italy in this book. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to read that. That's, I, that's a good story. Hal. you've, you've stumbled into something 
wonderfully there. Um, I did sort of stumble into it because at first I was like, this, this is something that I want to know. Um, like a lot of writing that's mm -hmm. sort of, you know, but what I really did stumble into was the sort of the American soccer movement's creation story. I mean, it's not Abner Doubleday, you know, but it is after a hundred, you know, soccer has been around in this country for a hundred years, hundred plus years, nothing ever happened. Why did it, why did it happen all of a sudden? This is why. Yeah. And you know, now it's begun, it's gone mainstream. Dylan has gone electric. When I was practicing law, I had the Tim Howard Landon Donovan World Cup on in the lobby of my office. You know, that's I, I remember where I was when Howard threw that ball halfway down the field, you know, with time running out. And yeah, 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 yeah. You know, how did how did we get to the term ubiquitous soccer mom? You know, <laughs> that didn't exist I when I was you. a kid. Well, you know when you know when that coined that so you know when that phrase was coined, 1996. Really, it was coined during the the Clinton reelection campaign when they identified this demographic as being a tipping point. But I use that as evidence that you know in 1996 that was sort of um, sort of an every not an every man. It was a, it was something that was ubiquitous. It was here are a bunch of moms who are driving their kids back and forth, not to baseball practice, not to football practice but to soccer practice. Mm -hmm. This would never have happened in the eighties. This would never have happened even in the seventies when it was starting to become popular. But yeah, great example of the way the culture had shifted by 1996. It's interesting what has come in, in soccer's wake, you know, the, from the periphery trying to go mainstream golf has always kind of been there. It fights its elitist reputation. It's well-earned elitist reputation in some respects, now you've got the world, you've got kids playing ice hockey in high school. I mean, my, in Louisville, Kentucky, my high school is like the, they win volleyball titles. They win lacrosse, you know, lacrosse has migrated from the East coast into interior America, but it's still on that, that fringe. It's not, there's a lot there that hasn't gone mainstream that I think, is, you know, a generation, two generations behind soccer. It'd be interesting to see which one clicks. Um, well, I think it's a different atmosphere now. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Trinity that you talked about was totally in play during the 80s when I was you know, in high school, the early 80s. And that's that's what made soccer sort of this outlier was that you weren't playing football in the fall. You weren't playing baseball in the spring. You know, you're playing club soccer instead of Legion ball. But uh, um, so that that did change. Um but what also changed was, you know, and has since changed is that no one plays three sports anymore. The, the, what they tell kids today is you've got to concentrate on one and play Premier League soccer 10 months a year to the exclusion of all these other things. Now, I think that's that is absolutely the way to become a professional soccer volleyball player. You got to dedicate yourself to it at the earliest stage. This is what America never did in the soccer aspect until you know until the 21st century. Honestly, yeah, because you had um, you had AAU basketball, you had travel baseball, you've got seven on seven passing camps at at every major college. Yeah, soccer is a little bit unique, more maybe more like golf in that I would assume you can you can be on a track that you don't need to attend the the college feeder system. 
you know, that that elite talent can skip a step because that's the European model, right? The, 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 all the big clubs in England have their under 23 and their under 18 academies, these gladiator academies for future uh, soccer stars. That, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's one of the things that that was really interesting and in going back and, and sort of combing through the history. When I was in high school, when, when, you know, when I was, you know, I graduated in 1982, we had no idea that that going to, you know, playing three sports in high school and then going to college um, and playing soccer or playing whatever was, you know, not the way to do it was not the way to produce international athletes of the highest caliber in America. That's the way we did it. That, that was certainly the way we produced the decathletes and all the baseball, football, and basketball stars that were, you know, famous and the best in their field or so we were told the European model was always different. It was get yourself professionalized at the earliest possible age. Don't play three sports, play soccer or golf or volleyball or cricket, what have you, and do it in a dedicated way. And also college has nothing to do with your, your perfect, your sports development. And that's, that's an American phenomenon. And they still don't understand how and why do we do it. It really works for, for baseball, basketball, and football. It really does work. You know, the, 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 the pretzel, you know, logic that you have to use as an administrator of a college to make that happen is a whole nother subject. But People from Europe are like, that is weird. Who cares if, you know, if, if these, these schools have sports programs, who would watch that? Well, we do. We do because we want, there's for some, whatever reason, culturally, I think we don't buy it. Yes. The, the turn professional early and, and make it is great for the two or three out of each class each year that make it we're much more worried culturally about the other 97 out of that hundred. Well, they didn't make it. What are they going to do? Oh God, we've got to worry about them. And that's, that's a whole other, that's down the, the way. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. You know, the, you know, I played, I played soccer at the university of London. Well, I did a, a year abroad there and people hear that and they're like, Oh wow, you must've been pretty good. No, no, I'm, you know, I was fine. I was, uh, but no one who plays soccer at college in England is any good. Right. They're certainly not going to be playing professionally. All those kids are already playing in somebody's, you know, um, youth, you know, system at 18, 19 and 20. Um, they, they, they're not saying, you know, that you shouldn't go to college. In fact, you know, up until recently in England, you want to go to college. The government paid for it. So here we're trying to have it both ways. We're like, oh, we want everyone to have a college education. But we also recognize the school does that we can make a boatload of money you know, by chasing, you know, big time football, or even I went to a small college, you know, they make so much money just having a good, a good football team. People show up and, and uh, tailgate and give money to the school because of the sports, which again, just blows the mind of Europeans and Asians um, looking from afar. They don't get, it. you know, my wife pointed out, she worked in athletics briefly after grad school. And she says the the closest thing to that model here are college gymnasts because anybody that's going to the Olympics is if they're in college, they're too old to get to the Olympics that they've, they're doing it for the, they're doing it because they love it or they want to get into coaching or, or something like that. You know, speaking of that European model that has served Southeast Asia very well in the golf space, you know, that that's yes. where, where I know you constant, you do, you know, a fair bit of your PR career has been uh, facing in Asia. 
what have you seen? Has there been any consequence yet on the from the Euro tour becoming the or Saudi Arabia buying into the Asian tour? Is that is that rippling through anywhere? Uh, is that or is it just okay? Good, we basically got a new sponsor, and our events are worth more money over there from your sources. It's an interesting question. Um, uh, you know, on the on the women's side, um, which is the side of golf that, in a tournament sense, Asians care way more about um, because their their players are are the best in the world. Yeah. Um, so they care about it more. That there's there's obviously not been any kind of impact because we're talking about a men's tour. The issue in Asia has been that the old Asian tour, which has a new incarnation every five or seven years, just can't get any traction. Um, they can't compete with the European tour and the U.S. tour in terms of glitz and 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 um, personality. They can't. The, the golf personalities are more numerous and more famous on these other tours, um, and they can't find the sponsors to make it rich enough to attract those players. So, the Saudi money. Um, does affect the ability of the tour in Asia to attract a better class of player. Although it doesn't seem to me that they're going to be taking that tour to Asia in any dedicated way. So if they did, then I think it would be a big, big, you know, development for Asian golf right now. Um, I think they're going to have tournaments in the Middle East mm -hmm. that throw this that kind of money around. They want to go head to head in Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, with the European tour, they're not going to expand necessarily into Australasia. Yeah. Well, the European tour plays so few of its events in Europe anymore. I looked at the schedule, you know, not that long, I guess last year, this time last year, and it's like, oh, wow, you can count on one hand the number of tournaments played on the British Isles, uh, you know, right. maybe two hands of all the things on continental Europe, but they were already Africa, Asia. Um, let me ask you this. How loud was the crack in the earth that you heard when China kind of went about face on golf? When elements of the, the Chinese government said, no, no more, we're going back on yeah, golf yeah. courses? It was huge. So um, in, in a large, in a, in a huge, China is called the middle kingdom for good reason. They, as their economy goes, so goes the rest of Asia. And that has been true for 3,000 years, save the 100 years between 1870 and 1970. They had a bad century, and, but that's over. So, <clears throat> for example, you know, they're not traveling now because of COVID. And that has, that has affected, um, in a deleterious way, tourism all over Asia, all over Asia. Now, the, the Japanese and the Koreans, they travel a lot, especially in a golf context. But not as, you know, without China, you know, without Chinese, you know, nationals traveling around the region, you know, all these projects that have been built in the last 10 years are just sucking wind. So um, in the golf development niche, and it really is a tiny portion of what we're talking. It's tourism is much bigger, but yeah, it was a, it was a thunderclap when they stopped building golf courses because when they started in roughly 2000, they immediately became the place everyone in the golf industry, the golf course industry wanted to work. Everyone opened an office there. Everyone signed deals to build 
to design and build golf courses in China because they're like, oh, my God, all, all we need is this tiny sliver of the Chinese population being interested in golf. And we have a bonanza. And I mean, when what was the project that was 10 golf? There was this one mythical project that they were going to build 10 golf courses at one. Was that? No, it ain't mythical. It's, it's in the ground. It's called uh, Mission Hills. That's right. It's, yes. it's actually bigger than that. It's, I've been there. Um, there's a couple of them. There's one in Shenzhen, which is just the, the mainland just north of Hong Kong. And there's 10 courses there. Then there's another Mission Hills Haiko, which is um, on Hainan Island, which is um, off the southern coast. It's big. It, it, like, um, it, it hangs down like a dingleberry from the southern coast of, of China. And it's very tropical, subtropical. Okay. And that has always been sort of a, a separate sort of tourism zone even back in the day. And they've, they've built 10 horses at that resort. Um, and I've played three or four of them. They're very good. Um, so <laughs> no one's playing these golf courses now. That is for sure. Um, but yeah, but, so the, the shift that they did was philosophical. They saw golf as sort of a, an agent of, of, of Western capitalism. And um that, that, that story is quite complicated. I, I can get into it if you want, but when, when they shut it down and stopped building golf courses, you know, there was, there was like rats from a sinking ship. I mean, everyone had invested time and money to, to go at that market. Um, and then all of a sudden it was gone and they're not even now the court that it existed, there is a market there, but they're just redoing golf courses that survived. So, I mean, these are golf courses that were built in the aughts and now need to be renovated. So that's the extent of the golf course business now taking place in China. And that's, am I correct in understanding that it's, everything's local there. It, it, it's kind of at the benevolence of whoever is at a local or regional can control how much, whether the golf courses stay open or is that kind of just popular myth? Yeah, no, that, that, that's actually that you put your finger on a very important thing. And this sort of gets us into the weeds. I'll try to be succinct. The Chinese government, the central government, actually started frowning on golf course development in the aughts because um, one of the problems was is that um, there's no publicly, there's no privately held land in China. You know, the, the, the government, local and central, federal, they own all the land. So locally is how these projects got built. Some local, you know, bureaucrat figured out some way to sell or to get a hold of this land and sell it to developers, which he had no real right to do. Oh, that's the, the ultimate not- bait and switch. <laughs> yes. So, but the one of the reasons they did it was <laughs> they wanted to preserve, you know, the land in sort of an industrial capacity. I'm using air quotes. You've got to do something with the land in order to pull this scheme off. You got to build a factory, you know, to employ people. Um, you've got to build a golf course that will employ people um, in order to get these deals done. So even after the central government had said, "Hey, this golf thing is not what we want to be doing," these local deals got done anyway, in spite of the central government's wishes. And those are the golf courses in the main that were shut down. Okay. In 2014, when the Chinese government said, "Look, we're serious." No more golf development. And, and we're going to close 100 of these golf courses to show you that we're serious. And that's really what happened. And so there's still 450 golf courses in China. 
um, which is a lot, you know, but, you know, Japan has 2000. So it's not as many as could be there. Right. Um, but there were there were 600. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned you call it, you you mentioned the Middle Kingdom and that the the Chinese are the big driver of that whole regional economy. Has there, I know you have a presence, Mandarin has a presence in Vietnam, which is where there's been some golf boom. Has there been, has the pie piece, are the pie pieces moving? Have Korea and Vietnam and other places in, in Southeast Asia been able to benefit? Or is that lack of a driver, lack of the, the Chinese public playing golf kind of tempered golf course building and development on the periphery? It has, it has tempered it. Um, uh, uh, of late, um, the COVID has done. This. I mean, um, if, if you don't have, so um, I've been working in Vietnam since 2004 and um, I have a, a, a web development company with a partner and we, we, um, we build websites um, with an offshore development team in Vietnam. Um, but I've also, you know, have golf clients there since 2004. One of my clients um, is called Hoyana Shores, and it's a beautiful Robert Trent Jones Jr. designed golf course on the beach in Da Nang, um, which is, you know, the former R&R center for all of the, the American troops during the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great city and um, amazing coastline, um, Sandy. I mean, they build a proper links course right there next to a giant casino and hotel. Well, of course they did. Now this, <laughs> yes, because this giant casino and hotel was going to make all the money. The golf was just an amenity. And the golf and the casino was designed to attract Chinese tourists. They will, you can't gamble in China. So they will get on planes by the thousand and go to Vietnam to gamble. To Macau, to Vietnam, to yes. every, uh, on the rim. Yeah. Right. So they're not doing that anymore then because of COVID, because they're, they're not leaving the country. So that project is basically on hold, not dead in the water. It's all built, but no one's going to it because, oh, by the way, Vietnamese aren't allowed to gamble in <laughs> Vietnam. So you have to be like you have to show your passport as a foreign national to get into the casino because Vietnamese aren't allowed. to. Is there a, a play for Europeans and Americans for Westerners to get there or is it just too far? Again, this is sort of getting into the weeds. When we, when I first started working in Vietnam in the early 2000s, that was the idea. Oh, we can get Europeans and Americans to come here um, in, uh, because it's not that far. We make that trip, blah, blah, blah. I think it's too far. I think they've all decided, look, we're not going to get these guys in the numbers we need. And oh, by the way, if China is traveling and all the other countries in Southeast Asia are operating normally in a tourist fashion, there's plenty of people to make these developments work to buy real estate, to play golf, to gamble. But um, in the golf sense, the, 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 the critical mass um, has moved from China to a, two places like Vietnam and Indonesia, um, but, and, and, and to the Middle East, frankly, um, you know, that that's now where golf development is happening in the biggest sort of way in that region. Um, and, you know, They've, they're all banking on COVID being done at some point and people traveling in, in um, more concerted um, ways and bigger numbers. But yeah, it, it's sort of like the manufacturing operation, you know, um, making widgets in the early 2000s. Everyone went to China mm -hmm. because it was cheap. Um, 
But now that it's more expensive and politically difficult to work in China, manufacturing is moving to places like Vietnam, where you have where it's still very, very cheap to operate, where the population, frankly, is is very educated, much more educated than China. I think they have 98 percent literacy in Vietnam um, and a uh, great place to do business. I mean, the place is growing, you know, seven percent a year, you know, the economy. So but it's still cheap. And you can. So that holds for golf as well. Um, and Vietnam has this amazing coastline, you know, where you can build amazing golf courses. But without Chinese people flying in to gamble and play golf, God, it's really I'm not sure that the, I'm not sure that the numbers work. Gotcha. Um, that all makes sense. I mean, I just yes, sort of no, it does. I, get the mouth. Don't here. worry. I'm. No one listens to this. I understand. I've got an econ and a finance degree, so uh, you just have to make me understand it, and we're good. Yeah, I don't. It, no, oh, no one's listening to this, Hal. Don't worry about it. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad no one's listening. Hey, no one's listening. Is, so, so, very just, so just you and me. Just, just no one else is listening. Mm-hmm. How yeah. much of your job used to be, or still is, worrying about the weather, trying to win that magazine cover? on the golf course side worrying about the weather you mean like getting to get good a good photo taken? yeah to get a good to get the photographer in there on a good day um geez the photography thing is such a is such a <laughs> bizarre little aspect of my work you know again i you know i'm 57 so i've been at this long enough that i can see the stretch of time these poor photographers have really been screwed i mean when I got into the business in the nineties, um, you know, there were a dozen top flight golf course photographers and there were others who weren't quite that good, but were still very good. Now everybody takes pictures with their phones and they are convinced they can take the pictures they need with their phones. This has oh, no. depressed the money oh, no. that a photographer can make. Oh, it's terrible. These poor guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, golf course photography is a real art. Um, and, uh, I mean, basically the way the shoots work, it, it, you bring a guy in for a week on purpose because you can't count on the weather, um, for a day or two. So you're always going to get the shot. It just might take longer. It might take seven days to get that shot, not two days, um, which is hard to get, you know, someone's head around when they're paying for it. But I'm like, look, like you can't, you got to wait. I mean, if they don't get the right cloud cover, you know, and the Jesus light coming through that, those clouds, you're not going to be happy. So you always get the shot. It just takes a little bit longer and the photographers don't get paid as much as they used to. If drones made it better, worse, uh, is there any innovation left in the photography side or is, is everybody want that golden hour last, you know, 90 minutes before sunset, like you said, the Jesus light coming through and, yes. uh... <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure there's innovation. I don't know what it will be. Um, the, the drone thing has has revolutionized the way that um, people think about golf course photography. Uh, I actually tried to get rich and famous on this. I started sort of brokering and, and connecting drone photographers with golf courses as part of my business. And I'm like this, as I tell my children, how am I not rich and famous by now? How, how is it possible? And here's another example of, of, of where I should have been, but am not rich and famous. But uh so it has changed. Um, now it's commonplace. You know, 10 years ago, it was not. Um, I think it's I think it's I think it's changed it for the better. Um, those are really great shots. There's very few things in this world that aren't 
um, more interesting to look at from above. The difficult thing is, and my little bugaboo is, I think, I think drone photographers, as opposed to actual golf course photographers who can operate a drone. Right. Those are two different groups of people. Drone, drone operators go too high. If you go too high, you flatten out the contour on a golf hole. Um, you really only need to about, be about 20 feet high to yeah. get You can't that. see the, the wrinkled ground if you're doing exactly. the hawk's eye view. Yeah, we need that in real exactly. estate. You know, if we want to show a farm, yeah. we want to show the tree lines and where the creek is and all of that, or even develop in a neighborhood. But yeah, my, my contention has been you couldn't photograph Tobacco Road or Ely and capture that ground contour from 50 feet, 100 feet. You need to be down there almost, like you said, two basketball goals at the max. Right. And, and um, that's true. From <clears throat> I knew that from looking at them, but I also knew it um, because, you know, in the in an analog world, you know, all you need, you know, is a good stepladder to create nearly enough, nearly the same thing. If you're if you have a photographer standing on a 10 foot stepladder, you are 15 feet in the air and you can you can set up shop behind a golf green and shoot back at the golf hole. And that's that's pretty great. I mean, if you have a cherry picker, that's better. But you can get that bird's eye view. It's really and this it's really isn't it really a ball view? And we see this now with CGI and like um, drone shots of a golf course. You see those now. Um, it's de rigueur to have these hole by hole tours right. where a drone. And I think that's great. And um, I, I, I feel proud that I um, identified this and tried to make money at it before almost anyone else. I didn't, but I tried. And I, but you're really inhabiting the ball, right? That's the that's the view that a, dr a drone of a, a drone tour of a golf hole produces. And that golf ball just doesn't go very high, does it? Maybe the innovation will be how to keep a golf ball in front of it so you can see where that thing rolls on the interesting courses, on the links, <laughs> on those links courses in Vietnam. They're going to get built in this next generation. So you've got <laughs> you've got a roller ball and you can see, oh, it's going to it's going to trickle down there. It's going to go over there. That that's how you get the yeah. golf nerd. That won't do anything for the general public that you're trying to get to go vacation there. But for the golf nerd, that's going to be manna from heaven. Um, right. I should say that. um um, I think that the next innovation that I, that I see in the industry that I think is going to be uh, trickling down to the consumer, the golfer, him or herself, is um, is CGI. Um, we see this in um, in golf course design. A golf course architect can hand his his plans for a newly renovated golf hole and a picture of the existing golf hole a picture, you know, a photograph to a CGI, you know, engineer, and they can create a, a, a moving picture of the new golf hole and what it will look like with astonishing accuracy. Will that do, can you, can you teach the bulldozer drivers how to, to see what they see inside the little device into, to make that happen on the ground? Yeah, I can. I think that twenty or thirty years from now, that will be. You've already common. got. They're they're doing road construction outside my house, and they've got satellite poles on each side of the bulldozer to know where the road is going. So that's got to be coming in the golf course construction yes. business. I think you're right, and um, uh, you know, I think that that that's one of those things that that 
it would be, you know, in, in a COVID situation where you've designed a golf course, but it's in, it's in Yemen and you can't be there to oversee its construction. You can have a bulldozer operator follow your plan to the letter in that way. Now, a lot of people don't want their golf courses built that way. They want to be there in the, in the dirt, as they say, directing and saying, oh, you know what? I don't like that now. I want to do this, you know, and that's what Gil Hans does. That's why, and you know, and that's why he gets paid someone. That's what Tom Dope does. They, mm-hmm. they have plans, but they would much rather fly by the seat of their pants um, on the ground. But there are, yes, but there are, like our friends at, at Fry's Tracker, there are still a lot of people that are design build. Uh, and they do fabulous work too. Um, yeah, there's not as many design build people as you think, um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, you'd say, oh, of course, design build all in one. That's going to be more efficient. Well, one of the one of the one of the things um, that you learn in in the construction business is that the architect keeps an eye on the on the contractor, and the contractor keeps an eye on the architect. Yeah. So they're sort of vetting each other's work to make sure that they're not screwing the client from a price standpoint, from an effort standpoint. And with if you're design build, those checks and balances are gone. Right. It's one that all the money's going to the same place. I misspoke. I, I meant design contract. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah I misspoke. Yeah. You know, I, I watched a course be built in Southern Kentucky uh, a couple of years ago, Park Mammoth, that's going to open up this year. And that, that was two young architects, kind of their first big project. It was a, but technically a, a renovation, but um, it did a story. And that's how I got involved with McKellar was writing that story. And they said at one time they had 31 different contractors that they were trying to oversee as the architects. And, you know, right. and at the same time, every once in a while, get on a bulldozer because that curve didn't just look perfectly right. So it was, it was interesting to see how these guys were, were doing, you know, project management design and a lot of it was being designed in the field because they could be there because it was 2020 there wasn't nobody was doing anything else but yeah that being able to hand the plans to you know the general the gc and the guy that's doing the earth moving equipment that's there may be some some innovation there Uh, a couple of things i'm running up against taking all the time that i told you i would take you guys do a good job of keeping martha's vineyard pretty pretty secretive as far as how much fun that was. We had a, a great time this summer. Um, is that just, is that just a new England thing? Like, don't, don't tell the flatland. Don't, don't tell the hillbillies about this. We don't want them here. Um, it might be, I think that, that <laughs> I think that, I think that people in, I'm from Massachusetts. So I, I grew up there and I think people in Massachusetts are willing to um, sort of let the, the horn blare regarding Cape Cod. It's mm-hmm. something that we know we can't keep to ourselves. Um, but yeah, uh, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket are, are removed enough that, um, that people don't know just what amazing places they are, except if you're super rich, the rich people know that there's plenty of rich people, um, in bo- on both islands and, uh, they have no problem, um, getting there and knowing where to go. But, uh, 
I, I, yeah, I, I love Martha's Vineyard. There's so much going on there. And I have a good friend on Nantucket. So I spend a lot of time out there too. Well, they, they are beautiful. That's, I joke that people come here, they may bring a kid for college to look at Transier University of Kentucky and they're, they're always shocked at how pretty the land is. And if Keeneland's racing, they're blown away by that experience. Like, God, we don't know about this. Like, well, we don't tell anybody about it. We don't, we, <laughs> we've, we've got a history with, with carpetbaggers and we don't want them, you know, joking, of course, because tourism, tourism is our next big thing, um, allegedly, but I just wanted to let you know that you guys do a good job of keeping that quiet because there's some really special stuff at Martha's Vineyard and on Chappaquiddick that um, I talked to Brad Woodger on here a few episodes ago and just had so much fun talking about that one nine hole golf course on Chappaquiddick Island. Um, we should just quickly plug. I mean, McKellar, you and I both write for this magazine called McKellar. Um, My friend Tom Dunn is um, the founding editor there, and it's a no ad subscription only uh, magazine that is really fine work. So you should look it up and subscribe. They're the ones who sponsored that event that you're talking about, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, that was where you were you were unavailable, which was sad. It would have been nice to see you, you know, throw your shoulder out again, trying to swing way too hard at a golf ball. (laughs) My band was going to play that event and we couldn't do it for a variety of reasons, but uh, that would have been awesome. I love going to the thing. Well, we'll get you, we'll get you next time. You'll be a uh, launch of it for issue number six, whenever that comes out. When did nice. you get, a, get you out of here on this? You wrote something on your blog uh, about a year ago, the Augusta versus St. Andrews aesthetic in golf, golf course design. And I, when I was researching, getting ready for this, I saw that and my heart dropped a little bit because I was writing the same article, just calling it a sand hills. Uh, because Sand Hills out of Nebraska um, turns 25 this year. Plus, I'm a Sand Hills of North Carolina fanatic. I love, you know, and they have gone all in on that scraped sand, scrubby, wispy fescue native aesthetic. And you make the point in that article that as, you know, the industry has spent two plus decades moving towards that and away from Augusta National, except not everybody had talk to me a little bit about kind of because that was a nice piece about how your, your Asian clients didn't want that scrubby. They wanted pretty basically to boil it down. Yeah. And that's one of the things I noticed um, working in Asia is, is that um, they have different idea about what, what makes a good golf course. I mean, everyone does. Um, I think there's plenty of Americans who, when they think about a golf course, and the pinnacle of that experience, um, they think about a, a parkland golf course. And the, the, the epitome of that is Augusta National. And it's the golf course. It's the major that's played in one place. So everyone knows it in mm-hmm. a way they know no other golf course in this country, um, maybe the world. Um, but, yeah, that, you know, again, when I got into the golf business, the people and the, um, you know, the people, who, uh, the, the architects who were hottest, were Tom Fazio and Jack Nicholas and Pete Dye. Mm. Um, and the golf courses they built were all parkland golf courses. They were lush, they were green. Um, and pretty much from the moment I got into the business, it started moving the other way toward a Sandhill model. Um, what I call the St. Andrews ideal, because it's not our ideal. It was, it's the Lynx ideal. It's, you know, it was created there, you know, 300 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating to me that, you know, one of the things you learn when you go to Asia is, it, they're not, it's not like they're building, you know, parkland golf courses because, um, the site says, Oh, well, this should be a parkland golf course. 
They want a Parkland golf course. Now, why do they want a Parkland golf course? Because maybe they live in a city and they, and, and their idea of going to a golf course, they want to, they want it to be more of a, a parkland experience, a, like a, literally a park, right. You know, because they're urbanites. Um, so that's one reason that they prefer that. And the other one is, you know, it, it feels, it feels more prestigious and exclusive and fancy if it's a manicured lush environment with landscaping. Um, I love, um, I love the quote in that piece from my Taiwanese friend who said, I know he, he, he's Singaporean, but he's like, yeah, I went to Bandon Dunes with a bunch of Taiwanese guys. And they were like, this place is a dump. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's all brown. It's all austere and there's no flowers. And so I was, I thought that was so true. Um, and, and I, and it's not like all Americans are enamored of the Sand Hill model. I think that I would say the majority of American golfers would rather play in a lush green environment like Muirfield village. Yeah. Where I met you at, at Kenwood, they, you know, that was, yeah. a, that's a, a, that's a golden age uh, design, but it's built on mud and clay. And so Jason and Dana were smart enough to, you know, there's not a ton of wispy fescue. They had to take a bunch of trees, but that is as green as bef- now, as it was before the health, the turf is actually much healthier for all the, the trees they took out, but they didn't go to, you know, sp- scrape sand and, and scrubbiness. There's that's, I'm sure not what their mandate was from the club. And that place is beautiful. That it's that country club, Augusta National is the pinnacle of every what I would assume every private golf club, every country club like that's there's a significant chunk of their membership that wants it to look like that. And you'd have to sell them on something different. Right. And I think that that, that you've hit the nail on the head and, and there is a connection between prestige and this lush parkland garden environment, even here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, 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 that people with money who are the people who are belonging to private clubs, they have an ideal of what this environment should look like. But, but um, that's, that, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's another attitude that I think has evolved because when Kenwood was built in 1930, I'm not sure it had irrigation. It might have. But um, all the golf courses built before 1930 did not. Now, what does that mean? That means that they weren't lush ever. They were lush maybe for two weeks, you know, in a, in a golf season. Um, uh, it means that um, they're playing on baked out play most of the time that ran hard and fast, like a certain type of golf course. Those golf courses were built on largely treeless sites in the 20s and the teens. All those trees have grown up since. The, the golf courses that were built during golf's, you know, um, fabled golden age in America were were almost entirely built on a on a links on an English or UK links model. They were treeless former farmland sites. Mm-hmm. They were there was no irrigation, um, so the golf course played hard and fast, whether you wanted it to or not. And they have grown into lush garden um, environments post irrigation and because people wanted it that way. So. You know the links. The links model is hard to argue with. It's um, it's more sustainable. It's more um, austere, but beautiful in its own way. And um, there are good reasons to prefer it. Are, is there a third option that's going to emerge, or is the pendulum just going to swing back? You know, we've been doing. I don't know if you followed Derek Duncan, who now writes for Golf Digest. He's their their course editor, and he, that's his question on his show. Is always 
you know, we've done, we, we've done wall to wall lush green for the last 30 years. We've done scraped sand, scrubby native grass, faster and firmer. He keeps waiting for what's next. And I'm wondering if we're just in perpetuity going on those parallel tracks, one or the other, or if there's, if you're seeing anything um, and maybe that's what, because they're building on an awful lot of sand. If they're, if golf construction is heading to the middle East, is that something is, you know, is that something where innovation, is that a place innovation can come from? It's not, not a part of the world known for innovation, but maybe. Um, the, that is, that is the, the big question. And I've talked to Derek about this, the, the, you know, and I've, and I've sort of been beating this drum since about 2001 when the Sand Hills era had obviously taken hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who are the true believers, you know, the people who um, spend time on the Golf Club Atlas, you know, website, these are design nerds um, of the highest order. You know, they would say, well, look, the, the period of lush golf in a parkland form had a, had a moment. It was, but, um, you know, from 1945, basically to 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an interregnum. It was everything before that was built on and maintained on a links ideal. And now we're moving back to where we, we really should be. So they don't see it as a pendulum swing. I think they see it as now we've, you know, they see it as a, uh, 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 what's, what's the, what's the word where you put a King back on the, on the on restoration. The Thank you. Restoration. Oh, and which is a good loaded word for this. Right. Whole it really is. So, so they see it as a restoration and, um, but how, but if I, you start and, selling, and, if you start selling real estate with golf again, you're going to be building, you're not going to be building on the nice Sandy land. You're going to be building on the crap that's left over with that. You can't build on. Right. And of the 15,000 golf courses that exist in America today, I mean, the kind of golf course that you're talking about with the Sandy Scrub, how many are there, in fact? Are there even 500? Probably not. No. you got some. No. You, you've got some in North Carolina. You've got some in the Great Plains. You've got a few out on the West Coast. And you've got pockets of sand, like you know, Sand Valley just up and happened. Nobody right. I mean, coming. they could still be the ideal, but the the vast majority of golf that is played by actual golfers is being done on parkland courses, um, you know, all over this country and in in the world Um, that's true in Asia. And it's true in England, even, I mean, all these England golf courses in England, um, what's changed, what changed the the ideal in the early 20th century is that going to be the the governing factor going forward. And that's why when you irrigate a golf course, you make it a certain type of golf that is played on it. And going forward, you know, water is going to be an ever more prized commodity. So I think what's going to happen is you're still going to have majority of golf courses that are inland that are built on clay. Um, but they are going to be increasingly unirrigated or irrigated at a lower level. And that is going to change things in a huge way. I think, um, going forward. Well, that's a perfect. I'll, I'll let you out on that because last week Jason told me that um, when you know they brought in a new superintendent at Kenwood that has tournament experience, and they are going to heat up those approaches and heat up those greens so that they play fast and firm. Um, they, they're going to spend that's what they're spending all of this year into September when that tournament's going to be played. So we'll get to see those ladies. Uh, some will, you know, maybe spend it on the green. 
but it's going to be the ball is going to be bouncing into the flag quite a bit if they're smart and it's going to be hot it's not going to be stuck in the mud of the approach and spinning back short so well i hope mother nature cooperates with their plants because um she can really screw it up (laughs) (laughs) so i'm 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 sending all the good karma their way because i want to see that too Thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. Did you get all that? I told you we were going around the world with Hal. He's great. He knows everyone in the business and has seen it all and been everywhere. So I'm grateful that he chose to share a little bit of it with us today. Remember to head over to Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast player service you're listening from and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for the Blind Shots Podcast, the lobster rolls get an extra ounce of butter on the house free of charge. Hope you've enjoyed what you heard here today. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now, but I will try to at least do better next time. And I hope you will join me next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, stay safe, be smart, and remember to hydrate throughout the day. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. I think that bar that bar keeps moving maybe maybe they're prettier than me I'm, right i've got no i've got no future in it that's right that that that's a whole podcast unto itself um, that because that that's a racket but it i think i was the uh, only one that wasn't at kenwood like everyone's like, oh, oh really? you're, are you a raider? No, no, I'm just a guy. <laughs> I'm just a guy with a beard and a microphone. This is awesome. <laughs>